0: Just on the brain damage front, there is real brain damage. The suicide rate among founders is significantly higher than the average in the population. And the, the depression rates are higher too. So actually being a founder is really bad for your head. Welcome to Aperture, a podcast where we highlight the people
1: who are thinking and doing things differently. Our goal is to expose new ideas, to challenge, received wisdom, and to open up debate. We cover strategy, technology, business models, and much more. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and also check out our other content at aperturehub.co thank you for listening welcome to episode three of aperture for this podcast we are with mike Nolley. Mike is best known as the CTO and co-founder of AppNexus, which is a real-time advertising platform which handles millions of ads per second and was recently sold to AT&T for almost $2 billion. Less well-known is what Mike is doing now, which is a startup called Live Better, aimed at improving people's mental health. We hope you enjoy, thanks. Mike, welcome to Aperture. Episode 3. Thank you very much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So, I have to tell you, I've been really looking forward to this discussion. Clearly, one of the things we want to talk about is your experience at AppNexus, h- how you were able to make that company so successful, some of the lessons learned. But I also want to um, explore the sort of darker side of tech with you. So, for anybody who follows Mike on Twitter or reads him on Medium, you you talk a lot about the excesses of you know of tech and the and the sort of valley mindset and so we want to get into some of those things too and then and then lastly uh we want to talk about your newest venture live better and you know what that's all about and also some of the change in perspective you've had that led you to cut start that company and also um subsequent to starting that company so let's kick off mike um just tell us about about your journey so far in particular you know the net the app nexus story
0: journey where do we start i guess we have to start uh, where did you grow up i'm dutch born in born in holland so i didn't know that yeah yeah i was born in holland i moved to the u.s when i was nine and wow. i also lived in france for a while yeah so, so f- what f- is your f-
1: f- first language
0: my first language is dutch but my english is now f- even my french is better than my dutch now um but yeah i moved to the u.s and i guess the story maybe starts around university which is went to a good school and all the on-campus interviews were for things like McKinsey and Goldman and Google at the time already, 2004, and I couldn't get a good job, and so I ended up, my first job was working at a rather crappy consulting company. Its name at the time... What, what, know, did, what did you study? Uh, I studied economics. Okay. Economics, but I was always a geek, actually. I did I did very little school and mostly programming uh, on the side because that made money, and then uh, I started working for a company called Answer Think, which is you know, it was probably a sign in the name that it was not the right place to go because normally you think and then you answer, but yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I got introduced to corporate life and hated it completely. Um, and then kind of almost by accident I ended up meeting Brian O'Kelly, who was ultimately my co-founder at AppNexus, um, uh, because he was a CTO and I said, I want to be a CTO one day. And I said, can I take you out to lunch? And he said, well, no, I'm too busy, but you can come interview at my startup, which was at the time Right Media, which was one of the first online, if not the first online ad exchange—a place to kind of buy sell ads. So worked there for two years, got hooked on the startup thing, and then in 2007, Brian said, "Do you want to start a company together?" And I said, "Absolutely, let's go." Um, so that was back in 2007. So we started the company. We didn't actually originally have an idea of what we're going to do. Uh, we obviously had experience in advertising, and uh, and so. That's where we started. Uh, we started with actually first cloud computing. This was back when AWS was first starting with okay. be the cloud ad platform for ads and then over kind of several years of iterating and failing, that evolved into what it ended up being acquired as, which is you know a real time advertising marketplace
1: okay in my mind the, the sort of world of online ad marketplaces is. There's, you know, Google and Facebook do it for themselves, right? Pretty much every, everybody else uses AppNexus. Is that, is that fair to say?
0: So, the, so on, on the two ends, you have the buyers and sellers. And in the middle, you have a load of intermediaries because there's a few large sellers, YouTube, Facebook. And then, of course, there's millions of websites out there. Yep. And, you know, no, all of them are too small to have their own sales force and they are selling their media in some shape or form. Um, back in the day, when, when we started Abnexus, that was mostly through ad networks. Um, that has then evolved, and so now you have this kind of complex chain where uh, publishers, they work with supply-side platforms, which are fancy um, fancy words really for ad networks. People aggregate a number of sites and try to sell it. Um, you have uh, advertisers, they, they don't, can't work with thousands of sellers, so they end up working with buy-side platforms, today called demand-side platforms. Also, basically, ad networks in a way, in that the sense that they aggregate a serious amount of demand and supply with some uh, specialty uh, and put that out there. Uh, What Avnex has built was a platform to let anyone run a trading business. Okay. Um, And so that could be a load of ad networks would do this, and of course, some very large buyers or very large sellers as well. Okay. And then Google, of course. So it's sort
1: of like providing the infrastructure for the whole is, business, right. rather than being a marketplace per se. Exactly. So okay. it's, it's
0: a lot of the plumbing. And so Google, they have their own market. So they're a big seller with YouTube. They're of course they also run one of the biggest marketplaces through the Double Click Ad Exchange. Yeah. Um, and of course they also have advertising services, and they actually act as one of the biggest buyers as well because they advertise a lot of what they do. So Google just does everything. Yeah. Is the simple answer.
1: And how um, like back like when you were working there. What kind of volumes was AppNexus doing? It was huge, right? It was-
0: yeah, I mean, the the volume of ads effectively because we're infrastructure for, for the ecosystem. Well, back in when we started and we started this model, um, we saw that advertising was very inefficient. And namely that because there were so many intermediaries and both the, the end buyer and seller were often rather uh, naive or ignorant of what was actually happening, there was just tons of arbitrage and tons of of, of people taking exorbitant fees yep. for really not yep. doing much work. And so uh, our idea was if we can do a real-time auction, then we can create an efficient marketplace. Think high-frequency trading. You know, can we, When someone goes to a web page, can we just say, hey, here's Ben, he's uh, in Geneva, and he likes uh, skiing. Who wants to show him an ad? Um, and then can we in real-time, so in real-time here, really mean in less than 100 milliseconds, can we run, so a tenth of a second, can we run an auction and try to sell an opportunity to show Ben an ad? And our idea was that if we do that, then we can build a marketplace that brings efficiency and makes it a win-win for everybody. So the idea being um, that publishers could make more money, advertisers could have less fees, and of course we could build a successful business kind of selling this technology.
1: So it was clearly very successful. And I just just to give a, like a sense of the scale at which you were uh, operating, scale, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because I just remember reading, I think it was on Wikipedia, so when I was preparing for this, there's some statistic on there about how many... you're auctioning per minute or per second and it was phenomenal right yeah
0: yeah so so as this company scaled become quite successful we ended up effectively listening to almost the entire internet yeah because almost most ads on the internet these days are now sold in real time Um, when i left we were doing several million ads every single second and that must now be maybe 10 or 20. Um, and what's actually quite crazy is that each one of those would syndicate out to up to 50 different technology platforms, each of which was representing hundreds of buyers. So you, we had millions of ads going out, turning into you know, 50 million plus bid requests per second, which is more volume than the New York Stock Exchange does. So in terms of volume, the numbers were, were really quite ridiculous. Wow! Uh, and th- that, was, that was the part that was really fun, was actually building the infrastructure to do that. So you know, we had thousands of servers all around the world dealing with you know, petabytes of data
1: and was that one of the hardest challenges
0: in growing the company was scaling the tech? Oh, absolutely. If if, if you look at, oh, I mean, there were there were market challenges, but I think the biggest for for back, especially this is I mean, you have to remember this is before AWS. Yeah. So w- we tried AWS back in 2008 for just as an experiment to see if you could run an ad platform. And back then, if you tried to throw more than let's say ten or twenty thousand. Um, page views per second, uh, the load balancers would stop working. So so you couldn't actually run an ad business on Amazon. So we actually had to go out and get physical data center space and get bandwidth contracts and and install the service. And even today, I mean, Amazon has gotten much better over the, and it's been, you know, 15 years later now. Um, and they've come become much better, but you, you had to build the technical expertise of building internet scale infrastructure. Yeah, uh, And that requires one, a, just a ton of capital Because, you know, if you want to install a thousand servers, you know, just buying the servers is going to cost you $5 million. So are
1: these these challenges, you're saying these challenges that you faced because you were kind of pre-AWS are not the same challenges you would face today if you were to start the same business? It's
0: significantly easier today but it's still challenging and right. if you still you still many companies struggle to deal with the volumes of not just traffic but then also the data that that spits off yeah um, because if you're buying billions of ads that's just a load of data and, and getting some insight and analysis out of that uh, is is incredibly difficult so it's it's become let's say 10x easier but it's still really difficult yeah
1: and what were the other challenges so i guess y- you had the usual challenges of scaling the tech finding the team uh, anything else that you know anything that was sort of peculiar
0: or particular to
1: to nexus.
0: well i think what's interesting is now i am now obviously fi- it's 5 years since i've left the company um, so i've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of startups about their challenges and so w- what's interesting is i think 90% of the challenges we faced are challenges that everyone faces scaling yep. a company you know when we got to about 100 people we started having problems around morale because you know it turns out when you when you start a company and you're five people it's it's like a close family and then you start growing you're 25 people and it's kind of like you have a few houses on the street and your neighbors and everyone knows each other super well yeah. and then suddenly you get there's this point you hit where suddenly people treat you like coworkers, not like family and then suddenly you have to you realize you don't have an hr function and oh crap you've never done a compensation document you've never you know put in rules you know operating rules like how, how should we behave in a company um, so hundreds probably about the point at which you can't know everybody personally either right yeah there's some number magic number yeah. we found it was when we hit around 100 people that we started having some real organizational scale challenges and and no one had any real management experience yeah. right so Uh, So a lot of the problems we faced are are ones that everyone faces, I think, as they grow. Um, And especially, I think we really had this hyper growth story because we went, you know, we went, we basically doubled our staff every year for six years in running. So we went 50, 100, 200, 400, 800. Uh, And so that there comes, there's a unique set set of challenges when you, one, don't have any management experience. Like the largest team I'd managed before I started the company was four people. And suddenly, you know, when you have 200 people in an organization, like how do you do that? Well, it turns out there's a lot of people who know how to do it, but startup founders tend to not know how to do it. Yeah. Um, so we had a lot of those challenges. And then I think that... The
1: and how, how did you overcome... So come, come back to the other challenge, but how did you overcome that? Was it the kind of advice and expertise that was brought by the board, the investors that helped you to overcome that? Was it hiring, you know, experienced managers? And, and then how did you do all that without fundamentally sort of undermining the culture and... Of Abnexus?
0: That's a big question. So, so I think then missing from that, how do you do that without fundamentally undermining your own physical well being? Yeah. Is another one. And that one I failed at miserably, <laughs> which is. <laughs> but I think what's interesting is the biggest breakthrough for me growing the company was I mean, I, I used to have quite a big ego. I probably started the company because I had a chip on my shoulder and I had something I wanted to prove. I don't know to who, but I definitely felt like I had to prove something to somebody. And I think the transformational point for me was when I realized that I, I just had no fucking clue what, what I was doing. Um, we'd gotten to a scale where I just, I was completely under underwater. I, I didn't know how to, you know, the tech team at the time were something like 50 people we were dealing with internet scale technical challenges. I don't have a computer science degree. Um, we're, you know, we're dealing with all sorts of kind of people issues and scaling issues and comp issues and, and management issues. And one day I realized I just didn't know what to do. Um, and I actually, for me, the saving grace was a, a club in New York. There's a, a club, it's called the New York CTO club. Uh, and I end up getting introduced to, um, one of the guys who runs it. And he said we'll come to a meeting and meet some others and, it, and it, i just met and they and it's a great club because you have you have startup ctos of 10-person companies and you have ctos of you know you have major engineering leaders from google who are, are in the club or big banks and then talking to these other ctos i realized that i didn't have to solve these problems alone that most yeah. of them were ones that people have solved before and i just found some amazing advisors and mentors uh, in that group that then enabled me to hire new people. Because what what the investors would say, just hire a VPE, yeah. hire, you know, hire a head of infrastructure, hire, hire, hire. But actually, you can't hire those people unless they respect you. And I think because I was a young, cocky uh, startup founder thinking I was amazing, a lot of people met me and said, well, you know, I, I couldn't convince them to come work for the company. And it's when I learned some humility that I just had no clue what I was doing and just switched from, hey, we're great and amazing to like, hey, you know, we're, we're on this great growth path. But... You know, I re- honestly, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm looking for a seasoned engineering leader. That's when we started having the breakthrough and and these people would come on board and were like, yeah, I, I do want to help you. I, I do know how to solve those problems. And I, I learned that I had a unique ability to solve some of the ad tech challenges. There's some kind of market mechanics that make, that make building a tech company for advertising quite unique. Um, and I just found the right people to come on board who could deal with, you know, Issues like how do you build five data centers around the world? Well, I found a guy, Tim Smith. He just he'd done it before, and he did it again.
1: Um, yeah, th- I mean these are the benefits of clusters, right? Which is you know um, you'd find it, I think you'd find it very difficult if you were to do this from from here, you know, Geneva, Switzerland to to find that same CTO club and those
0: same mentors and yeah. advisors, right? Although funny story, when we went out to raise money on Sand Hill Road back in two thousand seven. Uh, Brian, my co-founder, he did most of the fundraising and many VCs. We've got several VCs who told us, we'll fund you if you move to San Francisco. Right. So back at back then in 2007, people said, New York is not a place to run a startup. And, you know, imagine someone saying that now. New York is one of the, you know, yeah. probably number two in the U.S. I think. I think last year they became number two in terms of funding. So, obviously, you know, you have to go through some growing pains. But I think here in Switzerland, you know, there haven't been many exits. There haven't many people who have been there and done that before. So it certainly is more difficult, I think, for founders here just to get some, you know, some advice from people who have done it. Because it really, I, I think 90% of the startup's problems are just recurring problems that everyone faces as they build companies.
1: And do, do you think your, your evolution, sorry to ask you a personal question, but I reckon you're game for this anyway, but that evolution in, in your own sort of psyche from being, you know, the cocky, um, um, I mean, these are your words, right? The, the, yeah. Um, to the sort of more humble, um, uh, you know, more experienced, more humble uh, founder. Like, do you think the same Mike Nolley who became more humble would have been the same Mike Nolley to have taken such an ambitious step to create the company in the first place? Like, isn't, isn't the this, this sort of bravado, the cockiness part of what it takes to create something with this, you know, with
0: the same ambition that you had for AppNexus or not? I don't think I could do it again. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I have the right mindset and it's not just me. I think it's the whole team. If I think of the, the founding team of the company, um, we were, there was probably a core set of about 20 of us and 19 out of 20 of us had no kids. Some yeah. were married. Most, many were single. Uh, there's one guy on our engineering team, Urson, who who ran data, who had a wife and a kid. I don't, I don't know how he survived. He, he stayed with. I think he's still there actually. But uh, he, he, I mean, he was a rock star because now I have a four-year-old. Now I have no idea how anyone with a baby does a startup because. Yeah. Geez, I mean, the startup in itself is hard enough, and so I think there's part of like getting a group of young people, and we would work together all week, and then we would go out together on the weekend very often. So there was this total mix of a total immersion, yeah. Yeah, but. and so we're all immersed in in New York, and the city that never sleeps, always on. We would go on ski trips together. So there was this this environment that helped us create, I think, an amazing product and an amazing company that was totally ageist because if you were not young and willing to go out, you know, the people who didn't go out on Saturday night would come into work on Monday and be like, well, what happened over the weekend? Because there was always progress. I was in the office every Sunday and now I, I can't even imagine working on a weekend. I need my weekend. I need family time. Um, so I think there's something inherently, yeah, I guess ageist. You know, I, I don't think it's sexist necessarily, but there's also we were predominantly male, so that's another topic, maybe. But that that means that I think a lot of these startups come from groups of young people because they can just dedicate their life to it in a way yeah. that if you have a family, you can't. Yeah,
1: and I suppose the, there's
0: a sort of fearlessness of ignorance in a way as well, right? Which yeah, yeah, same yeah. exactly. Just this idea, yeah, I can do this. Of course, I can. Where if realistically, you look at the statistics and the odds. I mean, the this, yeah. statistics this are pretty pretty bad. I mean, we talked about this uh, last time we saw. My, uh, I have this analogy for, for startups that it's, it's kind of like the NFL. If, the, if you look at the NFL, the salaries in the NFL are actually not that high for the vast majority of players. I mean, it's far above you know the median U.S. wage, but it's not. You know you only play for a few years. The physical damage is, is really high. Yep. And now it turns out a lot of people end up with serious brain damage as well. And there's a few star players who make millions of dollars that everyone celebrates. And I think startups are exactly the same. Uh, you know, The vast majority of people don't make money. A uh, vast majority of people probably work... If you look at the hourly wage of most startups people, even the ones getting salaries, is far below market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a few people make it. And I think you kind of have to be young and stupid to, 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 to do that in a way. Um, and if you get lucky, you can you know make it and, and get your millions of dollars. And the vast majority of people end up... just not making it which is the sad truth
1: do you think the whole promise of startups is in a way like missold or oversold given the odds and given some you know the scars that you you get if you if you you know if you it's like if you're in a successful startup clearly um you can make a lot of money but there also comes with a lot of sacrifices and people tell you if you want to change the world the way to change the world today is to do a startup right yeah do you do you subscribe to that to that view or do you think it's
0: kind of oversold (laughs) I think it works sometimes. Just on the brain damage front, there is real brain damage. The suicide rate among founders is significantly higher than the average in the population. And the, the depression rates are higher too. So actually being a founder is really bad for your head. But let's talk about like the promise of the startup. So I think the, f- the first thing to realize that and I read this, I, I got to find the article and I'll send it to you so you can put it on, on, on the blog post that goes with this. But it talked about that actually, if you look at the economics of startups, ultimately um, the people who are making the money are the LPs and the VC funds and the VCs. The VCs get their carry uh, and they're basically, VCs are guaranteed not to make a loss. Whereas often startup founders invest their life savings, yeah. they, they can really lose their money. So the people making money ultimately is the elite out of these startups. And, you know, there's the top whatever, I don't know if it's 1% or 5% of startups that end up getting a financial return that then join that elite. So there's there's this economic model that I think is worth questioning uh, about whether it's the right one. And I think it's very interesting for Switzerland in particular because I think it's very un-Swiss to do that model. It's a lot of people taking below market wages at a tiny probability of making it rich. Yep. And the people who are making the guaranteed money are the elite as part of that. So I think for, for founders already, it's questionable. For the employees, it's certainly not because you know, if you look at, I, I've now been part of two exits so one was right media the first startup i worked at i made no money on the exit i worked like a dog for below market salary i made no money the second was a founder obviously i did better better off that time but the reality is is that startups are pyramid schemes in of themselves so i think for founders and employees I think you really want to question that model. Yeah. I think a lot of engineers now are waking up to it. I think in Silicon Valley, engineers now demand significant, very high salaries and their right to do so because many of them have been through a startup, have seen and didn't make any money and are saying, okay, well, you got to pay me a quarter million dollars a year to work for you because I don't believe your equity is worth anything. And I think that's a really safe attitude for anyone taking a job at a startup. The second aspect is from a societal impact, is the startup the right vehicle to change some of society's problems? Yeah. And so I think there's a problem, let's take, for example, obesity. So where the food we're eating right now is bad. So capitalism got us here, right? So thank you, Nestle, for making lots of sugar loaded products that are really bad for us. So I think the startup model for food is very interesting because we have an existing ecosystem where we go out, we buy food, we eat it, and then... Oh, we have no more food in our pantry, so we'll go out and we buy more. And I think there's new startups coming out that are creating new products that are healthier, that have better supply chain management, that know where the underlying goods come from, that are doing it in a sustainable way. And I think for that, the startup ecosystem of raise capital, build a, you know, release, develop a new product and release it to the market is fantastic. Um, I think there's other areas where it's quite the opposite. So we'll get to this probably more later. But with, you know, I've been working in mental health now for four years, and mental health is an area where startup economics just simply don't work. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think actually I would expand it to healthcare as a whole. I was at a conference a few weeks ago in London, I was talking about digital health, and the entire uh, 98% of the content in the conference was how do we treat people who are sick? And I, I find that just deeply wrong because we now have more people dying from preventable lifestyle driven diseases yep. than any time than from non-preventable ones. Right. And so like, instead of talking about how to treat people with heart conditions or with diabetes, we should talk about how do we prevent people from getting diabetes? And there is no economic model for that. And that is where startups don't work because yep. if you're gonna start a startup in healthcare guess what how do you make money when the insurance company reimburses you when does the insurance company reimburse you when someone is diagnosed as sick so we got to break that cycle somehow and startups are not the way to do that
1: yeah oh, there's so much to explore there I mean there's some there's other opportunity costs as well right which is if if you tell every if you tell every smart kid coming out of college they should do a startup there must be all sorts of opportunity cost in terms of them not doing other things that are of massive societal value.
0: Yeah, like politics or civic engagement. There's you know, government, public service are, are also, you know, if you think about Switzerland, you know, the vast majority of people get health care It's private companies. But, you know, you, you, you still need people who, who want to work for insurance companies like some, someone's yeah. got to do that work, too, which is incredibly valuable for society. We shouldn't just. Yeah, there's this, and, this and hero. teachers and doctors. And, yeah, yeah, this hero celebration. Like actually, the heroes are not saving the world. Um,
1: in the in this book that we talking about the causes of, of happiness, um, the impact that your primary school and your primary school teacher has on you, um, are felt in your happiness for the rest of your life. You know, so I mean, I don't think we accord the right level of importance to things like teaching. Right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But anyway, think that, that is potentially a rabbit hole. So we'll just we'll just stick like that for a second, because what we really want to get you on is business models, because um, I think what you're alluding to is is startup business models are a problem, right? And I think maybe let's start with the whole ad driven business model, right? Because AppNexus, um, if you go on the website, has a very noble sounding. Mission right, which is to—I'm not sure if I've got this right—but to power the ad-based business model that powers the internet, something to that effect, right? It's the
0: the power the advertising that powers the internet. Yep, there you the mission go. is to create a better internet, and for us, that begins with advertising.
1: Is an advertising-based internet a good thing? I mean, because presumably, when you did it, when you started the company, you thought it was. Do you, Do you still think that's the case?
0: Parts of it, yes. So I, I think there's a challenge, which is that or the economics of content have basically been driven down to zero. Um, I think the problems of advertising come in when we get to things like news, where news is an important social good. Like It's very important that we are informed about the news. And before, you used to get a newspaper uh, subscription. You would pay by quarter by year and you would get you know your newspaper my dad was the new york times and you would get the new york times once a day delivered to your doorstep and that's how you got your news and they had news editors and journalists who who made most of the decisions of what went into the newspaper if you look at news today most major newspapers update the news in real time based on clicks and that's a problem. And the re- so the reason they do this is clicks drive page views. So that you want the most clicks. So the more clicks you get on Google News for your articles, the more ads you show and the more money you make. And now newspaper editors, whose job used to be to curate and decide what was important, right, are now also making decisions about not just what's important, but what's driving page views. And that's problematic because clicks are not driven by our rational brain. I rationally know that I'm happiest when I read The Economist once a week because The Economist gives me a really nice summary of the news. It's not sensationalist. They give a deep analysis. I feel smarter when I read it, and I'm up to date. Yet the animal part of my brain, when I've got five minutes, takes up my phone, opens up Google News, and clicks on Donald Trump just tweeted whatever. Yep, and then once you've done that. You're then in a loop, right? Where all these things are, you know. 20 minutes go by. I waste 20 minutes of my life reading news that is actually, A, not important. I wish an editor had cut that and told me that I shouldn't read that because it's a waste of my time. Um, So I'm spending time on stuff that's not important, but the newspapers are making money because it's an advertising model. So I think that we have to really, there's there's times when advertising works great. You know, if you're a, a YouTube blogger, You've got a YouTube stream and advertisers are, are want to promote their products there. If it's transparent, clear, I'm all game for this. And, but I think there's some areas where for social goods, we really need to consider... Whether or not this is the right way to do it, and I think it's leading to this—you know—the New York Times, I feel, has become more and more left-wing sensationalist. Yep. The Fox News has become more and more right-wing sensationalist. We have all these clickbaity headlines, and we're no longer having an informed discussion about these topics. It's almost like which side are you on, left or right? Like this Trump What happened? Where's the middle ground? Can we can we have a discussion about you know? It, it, and the how, left do you, way- how
1: do how do and how do you do you think you dial the back the dial on? on sensationalism. How, how do we go back? I mean the genie is out of the box, right? How do you how do you go back to a pre internet level of you know of considered rational debate?
0: I have no idea. Okay, I don't need that. I, so. I <laughs> hope someone I hope someone has an idea. Yeah. Well ultimately But
1: what about what about the you know, the, the you, you mentioned the Economist. The Economist works on the basis that it, it's out once a week, you pay a subscription. The subscription means that they can fund journalism investigative journalism- i mean it seems like subscriptions could be part of the answer um, It seems like micro payments could be part of the answer, but I think the reason I said the genie's out of the box is because if you say to people okay we're going to now this this product's now got a price tag um then people get up you know people get up and arms quite quickly because they're so used to consuming content for free that they you know it's I'm not sure how you get people to pay again. I'm not sure how you kind of wind back the clock on this.
0: Yeah, so maybe ultimately it comes back down to government taking a role and and funding whether it is a series of independent, well, uh, funding and regulation. So if people aren't willing to pay for it, uh, let's let's fund it with some kind of shared tax or some at least some yep. factual, non-sensational basis of of news where where we're not, you know, constantly Pulled down the rabbit hole,
1: so I think there's a there's a case, there's a case for government intervention in in a way because if if the internet's got rid of distribution costs, then things become abundant, and the nat- the very nature of a public good is one that's abundant and like non-rival. So like it doesn't diminish in quality if multiple people consume it. Which is Twitter, right? The problem with Twitter is that it's funded by ads, therefore you know it because you know it's it has an incentive to keep you on there for longer and therefore it has an incentive to promote more and more stuff
0: to you that you think they think that you want to read well, and therefore and worse is that anybody can pr- can promote any point of view yep. non transparently so on facebook you, know, you can take a post, you write a nice sensational headline, so you get some amplified sharing, and then you promote it. And the question is, who is promoting it? Now, kudos to Facebook. They just started doing this in Canada, I believe, where you have to have show your ID, so at least they know who is promoting political views. But everything else, anybody, I can create a Facebook account and in 10 minutes be running ads that promote my point of view, and I can target it in a hyper-specific way. Right, and 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 that's just wrong. Like, like at some yep. point, yeah, sure. If you're Coca Cola and we we'll sell more Coke, great, that that makes sense. But at some point, when we get to information, or let's talk about truth, something something has to happen here. Um, now we're in this post-truth world, you know. So
1: there might be a case for providing public goods, um, or the the government providing public goods. I think the other advantage of government, and this I think, gets us. Into more what you're doing now which is when it's a merit good because as you said earlier on you know when it's there's so much there's so many merit goods that aren't provided adequately or in in, in enough supply because there's not an easy monetization route and you i mean you maybe we'll come back to this in a second but a classic example is you know is is preventative me- medicine that you mentioned right yeah um so i guess the question is that you know, it seems like since about the 1980s, we've had this narrative that government is bad. Um, all the innovation comes out of the private sector. Therefore, you know, again, is how easy is it to roll back the clock on that and to say to people, actually, the government has a very important role, after all, in the provision of public goods, even things that people really wouldn't think the government should be doing. Like, you know, imagine if you said t- Twitter is now going to be a public good um, gonna be taken over by this state. I mean, and then what, how does that work across national boundaries? I mean, it's a problematic let's, issue, isn't
0: it? Let's, let's maybe a step away from kind of the abstract because yeah. honestly, I'm not, I'm not qualified to talk about it and, and move into kind of- But you p- thought about it a lot, right? I, I thought about it, but let, let's talk about more concrete things like public goods, like mental health. And just to, to shift there, um, because maybe context, I, I started four years ago, live better, as you know. Um, yeah, when you moved to Switzerland. When I moved to Switzerland, exactly. And, and the, original, my, the mission of the company is to help people boost their well-being. So uh, we were for-profit. The idea was to take a startup model, iterate on a tech product, and can we use technology at scale to help people be happier? And can we make money doing it? This kind of what Anand calls in his book, Winner Takes All, this magic win-win situation. Yep. Um, and fast forward four years, we found out that, yes, we can build technology that helps people be happier. You can download the Live Better app. When people do it, we have a research study in progress, but you clearly see that people do basically mini sessions of cognitive behavioral therapy or, or well-being or mindfulness, and it helps them. The problem is it doesn't make money because people aren't willing to pay for apps because the app economy is going down to zero. Um, so context that for where I want to move to this, which is if you look at the UK, is, is shifting the model a little bit. And it's rare that you say the NHS is, is a model to look for. But the NHS, because they're a single payer healthcare system, uh, has figured out that people who have mental health problems cost them a lot of money later in life. Yep. And whereas in the U.S., there is no economic model because if an insurance company does a lot of prevention, they're more expensive, which means they do it for a year. And then someone switches to another insurance company who has the benefit from that. In the UK, the NHS has said, hold on, people aren't sleeping enough. And not sleeping enough is tied to all sorts of bad health outcomes. And so you now in the UK can get Sleepio prescribed by your GP and the NHS will pay for it. And I think that's a wonderful case of government and private working together. So I think the government has to kind of tweak the economic conditions so that individual entrepreneurs, you can call them social entrepreneurs or whatever that is, have a framework whereby they can then compete with each other to find the best possible solution, but it has to be done within some framework, not this free for all, not you know sidestepping regulation, but really kind of working with the system to develop the best possible preventative treatment, or for that matter, also kind of normal treatment as well. Yeah, so, I suppose
1: that's the floor. In what I was saying, right? Which is the the um, there's nothing if you if you agree that certain goods should be provided free or even subsidized because they have a, you know, a very positive impact on society. That doesn't mean the government needs to provide them. The government just needs to, as you said, just to subsidize them or provide the framework for them to be provide, provided free in the first place.
0: Yeah, every person could get you know, a $500 annual credit to spend on their personal well-being, yeah, right. Which can then, for any company that meets some certification, i.e., it's research-based and it actually is proven to help, let people choose what they want to spend their money on. Would be a really nice balance between and allowing entrepreneurs to be very innovative and iterative with their approach, which a government can't be, but also allocating money in a way so that you know people spend time on prevention, uh, which is just incredibly important. Um, yeah, th- th- there's another point which is
1: that there's government's kind of the only actor that can take into account externalities right because if it's provided by the private sector they're only interested in their own private costs and and income whereas a government can take a bigger view and take into account the positive and negative externalities of these things
0: right exactly exactly um and they have their vested interest of their citizens at heart right if you look at uh, I was trying to avoid macro issues, but Uber in a way like so they've built amazing technology, but a huge part of their business is sidestepping regulation. That's how they became big. Yeah, uh, And I think in the end sidestepping regulation and then taking just a percentage of all taxi proceeds and funneling them to Silicon Valley and, and their investors, you know, that it would, I think there's, I, I read, I, I see if I can find it. I forgot the city. There's some city, I think it was Austin and they have now their own taxi app for the city of Austin and it's paid for. It's a government-funded product that actually feels like a, a, a decent way for a government to spend their time. So rather than having Uber, who pays you know substandard wages to people, we're still guaranteeing that taxi drivers are taken care of and have yeah. you know the right benefits and the right wages and the convenience of this technology. Yeah, I think that's.
1: I, I agree. I think there's a massive role because I don't think you want to stop the. Innovation, right? That that leads to better customer services or better better consumer services, and which you know, I mean, if you take the case of Uber, right? I mean, there's there were whole parts of cities that weren't served by by taxis because it was too expensive. You know, bringing the price point down down to somewhere where everybody can take advantage of of, of that means of transport is a good thing. The problem is on on the other side, which as you said, right, which is um, if it's just a case of of lowering uh, wages for workers and pushing it into into cheaper consumer goods there's a problem right so i think the role of the government in terms of like allowing um those c- those workers the ability to bid up their own wages by helping them to port their benefits or to port their data from one provider to the other i think that's a like the whole kind of um tim o'reilly idea of a, you know government as a platform i think is really interesting yeah. um, which again is like not directly providing consumers not in any way stopping innovation, but just making sure that, that the safety net rises as, as innovation takes place, which I think is the whole backlash against technology. I think it's a large part about that, right? Which is people as consumers benefit from these things and they and they you know, day to day. But as workers, they can see that it's putting pressure on their lifestyles and, and, and it's difficult to, without government intervention, and intervention is maybe the wrong word, but that government support, and infrastructure it's difficult to see how both you get uh, the innovation that leads to better consumer outcomes at the same time as you get but better there was this amazing
0: um, graphic in our world and data which they do these great infographics and it talked about the evolution of, of the price of various goods over the last I can't remember if it was 40 or 50 years and, you know, if you look at things like a television, the cost has come down 90%. Yeah. And I think that's because of entrepreneurship and capitalism and, 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 and investors who, who invest in Sony and Panasonic and Samsung and all these companies that make cheaper displays and, and, and competition than capitalism. And at the same time, there's, there's a few things where this costs have skyrocketed and where dollar adjusted, kind of inflation adjusted, things are two or three times more expensive today than they used to be. And those are healthcare and education these core fundamental goods and and those are the areas where I think startups are not gonna fix education startups are not gonna fix healthcare and and we need to all just wake up to that reality and find a better way yeah. like when and you know it's not go back to you know it's not go back to communism or you know like in, in america there's this whole negative dialogue around socialism socialism is bad yeah. like that, it's not like it's capitalism versus socialism it's just that capitalism is great for making a new iphone and making an apple watch and, and making amazing technical innovation and capitalism just sucks when it comes to helping us be happier more educated and and healthier and so let's find a model that can take the best of capitalism but also Invest more resources in what matters, which, to your point earlier, ed- making sure our children have great nurturing environments where they learn. Because you know, it's like your happiness, your lifetime happiness, is almost fixed at least statistically before you're ten years old.
1: Yeah, no, like I, I agree. I think there's you know the other point is that capitalism is has done amazing things in terms of lifting people out of poverty. I think it's about making capitalism work better, rather than you know. T- Suggesting that capitalism is completely broken and needs to be replaced, and one part of that would be environmental, making capitalism run on renewable rails. Another part of that is is what we were talking about just before, which is lifting um, the safety net as people, as societies get richer, to ensure that you know everybody takes part, everybody benefits from that improvement in living standards. And then the third part, which is which is um, the bit you were talking about, which is I think where we could maybe what we could talk about for a second, which is how do you introduce more meaningful measures of progress? Because like you said, you, you talked about prices of things. And to my mind, you know, the whole way in which we measure inflation is broken because mm. if, if we say there's no inflation, but all the things that really matter to people, like the things that really determine your quality of life, like healthcare, education are growing exponentially. Then there's lots of inflation. Similarly, you know, if we only look at, if we only look at GDP, but, but GDP isn't leading to you know people being happier. Then again, there's there might be a problem there. And I think the, the last point about happiness is one you know we were talking about that earlier, which is I think quite close to your
0: uh, heart, right? Where do we start? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a, <laughs> we we talk about this for a long time, um, but absolutely. I mean, you look at it just very simply. Like the U.S. is a great. I, I keep going back to the U.S. It's it's the country I know best. I mean, I've been here for four years. It's somebody, in the U.S., they have some of the highest kind of raw dollar numbers in terms of median income and, and things yeah. like that. But, but I would say most people are, are, are not that happy. I haven't seen the latest metrics, but if you just go there, people are stressed and working like dogs. And, and a lot of that is the cultural value system has shifted towards celebrating hard work. And you used to be back in England, back in, what, I don't know when, 1800s, 1700s, if you were wealthy, you would not work that much. Yep. Like the sign of, of, of the upper class was having leisure time. And we've had this flip where now suddenly everybody's just working hard and we're celebrating working hard. And it's like, well, how are you? I'm busy is now the thing to say. Yeah, yeah. And I just hope it doesn't come to Switzerland because I feel like the Swiss have still respect for free time on the weekends. Uh, and, and, and things that actually, it's, even though maybe you make a little bit less money, taking more time is just so important, uh, for your happiness. And, and there's a number of other, I mean, it's not the only thing to do, but there's so many metrics like that where, yeah, you could make more money or yeah, we could drive kind of that cost or the, the, you know, the, how much this costs or how much, uh, how much, how much energy I spend on this, but really it's about relationships, spending time with people you care about eating well and having time to sleep. Like, like, That's what we need to be promoting, even if we all make a little bit less uh, from a kind of a national GDP standpoint, like that would result in a happy society.
1: I'm conscious that you haven't told us a great deal yet about Live Better. So um, how does that work practically? So it's an app, people download it. How how then does it work? How does it help them to improve their, their mental well-being?
0: It's quite interesting. So we're talking about this decision making. And when I first started Live Better, um, the theory was that, you know, in advertising, we collected loads and loads of data, right? So what sites you visit, you build a profile, and then you can make recommendations through ads effectively. And I thought, can we do the exact same thing, but with positive behaviors? So can we collect data about you through your smartphone, your smartwatch, your behavior and then say, Hey, you know, maybe you need to walk a little bit more. Maybe you need to sleep a little bit more. Maybe you should, you know, take a few deep breaths every now and then. Um, Can we make recommendations and I actually built a prototype? I tested on myself and some friends and family. And I I learned the first truth that every psychologist knows, which is that no one likes being told what to do. Yeah. And there's actually a school in psychology. It's called motivational interviewing. It's fascinating where actually if you want to get someone to do something, so let's say quit smoking. Actually, the worst thing to do is to say you should quit smoking. It's it's incredibly counterintuitive, yep. right? Because that's normally when we see something, someone do something bad. You know, you should go to bed earlier. You should do this. You should you know stop eating chocolate. Actually, what you're doing is the opposite, and you're making that behavior more likely. And um, but a much more effective thing would be to ask, hey, in the past, have you managed to stop smoking for a while? Which then gets the person to start thinking about that behavior and at a time in the past when they may be successfully changed it. So anyways, so live better, uh, th- this was, this is what we stumbled upon, was that uh, one, psychologists actually know how to change behavior, so if you go to therapy, a, a therapist can help you quit smoking, uh, give them some sessions, it's, it's going to be probably successful. Um, two, that actually the secrets to boosting our well-being are actually not secret. So, you know, if you read the news, you know, every week there's something, a new article, hey, you know, eating broccoli is, is, will boost your mood, you know. Yep. And so you have no idea what to do. You know, should I eat broccoli or should I sleep more, right? And it turns out if you look at the research, it's, it's, it's there, right? The things that make you happy are basically taking care of your body. So eating well, getting enough sleep, and, and walking. You don't have to exercise. Just make sure you move a little bit. Don't stay seated all day. And then, two, having strong relationships and spending time with people you care about. And so if you take care of your body and have strong interpersonal relationships, you've got a great foundation, bonus points for doing something that's valuable to you. It doesn't have to be changing the world. It can be, you know, it can be serving coffee at a cafe, but if you're proud of the coffee you're serving, it can be meaningful to you if you make someone's day with that. And so actually we started to live better, like rec- making remediations was totally the wrong thing to do. And actually there's this whole world of knowledge out there that is very accessible, that's, that is not in the mainstream view, and that if people would just know, they would probably become happier. And so we developed an app, Live Better, uh, that is a digital life coach. Uh, we have two, they're, they're purely virtual, there's no real people behind them, Lee and Liam, and they try to coach you to be a little happier. And the way they do that is really sharing a little bit of this knowledge that we've learned through our research, and it's all research-based. And the other is by asking you every now and then some probing questions to get you to think about these things. Like, who are the people that are important to you? And you list those people, and then the following question might be, well, when's the last time you were in touch with these people? And we might stop there, but that's just enough to get your brain going. Be like, yeah. oh, I, my mom matters to me. I haven't called her in a few weeks. I should call her. Yeah. Um, and so that's how it works. So you can just download and install the app. Uh, and And get going uh, whenever you want, and you 'll get a daily text message, a little question, and we try to keep it fun and light and totally accessible um, and you 've seen um reasonably good adoption
1: of this right and you 've also seen or you 're able to at least demonstrate now that it 's having a positive uh, impact on people 's well being right
0: yeah well're our research study should be done at the end of this month to actually it. So we're doing our first research study with the University of Denver, and we're launching another one with with Columbia in New York uh, later this year. But we see uh, everything. If you install the app, if you complete one of the challenges together with the coach, everything's based on 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 research. And so, for example, Richard Lair talks about this a lot too in his book. You know, gratitude is something that is yep. just the, the research behind gratitude is tremendous. Basically, if you can make gratitude part of your daily toolkit, um, you will be happier like it just it has a, it has a profound impact for the on your for life. the for the giver of gratitude as well as the receiver it's it's a both, both and that's, that's that's okay. the beauty of gratitude which is you know thank you for having me on this podcast this is fun and and I appreciate the time and energy you're putting into this you know hopefully you feel a bit better about i do i actually mean it yeah you can't, actually, see, you
1: can't see because it's um, not recorded but i'm glowing
0: yeah ben is glowing a <laughs> little bit. He is, he's got a big smile um and and so gratitude is this wonderful thing where now i feel better because i made you feel better yeah and it, it's it's about helping others and so you know through the app we get people to to identify someone they could thank for something and then get them to write a text message and then send that and so we know that has a positive impact Um, What the research study will hopefully help help us prove is that that turns that into a habit that you start doing on your own because you've done it a few times. You realize it makes you feel good. The coach explained to you why it works. Uh, And that's so I'm kind of actually anxiously awaiting the results. We know we have at least a tiny boost. And I'm I'm quite optimistic that we see some profound change. Yeah. And we've had a few people write to us where we had some woman who reconnected with her high school best friend 20 years later and was getting on a plane to go visit her. And she wrote us a thank you note, which, of course, made us feel made us feel really good because she found a great friend again. And that, I mean, going back to the research, you know, strong relationships, that's what's going to make you happy. So
1: without the same seeming sort of too contrived, I mean, if we go back to some of those earlier discussions, what you're doing then is you're just bottom up, just nudging people towards living healthier, more meaningful lives, right? So it's not a top down change in narrative or or what did you call them? The value system, whatever, but it's a bottom up grassroots led improvement in people's lives. And which is, so first of all, I think it's probably having a way bigger impact than maybe you acknowledge. And then this, but the second thing is that you said that, y- you know, you can't, f- you can't get people to pay for this and nor should you, right, because the minute you, well, in theory, right? Because the minute you put up a paywall, consumption will drop, you know, it's normal supply and demand and therefore you'd be cutting people off from services that are beneficial to them and I, I guess in some cases are life-saving to them. So the question then is, is Mike Nolley just funding this out of Mike Nolley's, um pocket? So is this are you are like a, a genuine philanthropist? Yeah,
0: so so what we found exactly to point is that the um, we, we did experience we tried throwing up a paywall, yep. and we found just the the lifetime value of a customer was far lower than the cost of acquisition because because the app marketplace is just swamped with. The, and people
1: don't. I guess people don't refer other people because they're embarrassed that they have.
0: Yeah, so, all, so we yeah. tried social referral mechanisms. And we found it, it, one peop, one thing people really appreciate about the app is that it's anonymous and private. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you don't have to give us your email. You you can use a fake name. You know, the coach just wants to be able to call you something. It can be Purple Koala. Like, we don't care. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so it's a totally private, anonymous experience, um, which is why people value it. And so we, we asked people to share Live Better, and, and the response was like, no, I don't Old want people silence. to use this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, not even a no. Just people ignore yeah. it. Because the the thing is, we have with our phones. If we don't want to deal with something, we just turn them off. Yeah. Right. And and that, that's the big challenge. And so what what we decided in this was this past December actually, we started looking. Well, what do we do? Because the whole whole idea was as a startup was to get revenue, which would give us money to do marketing, which led us would lead us to have a bigger impact. And w- what everyone else seemed to be doing, and I've, I've talked to a number of other founders who've done mental health startups and investors, who are, it's really a trend now where everyone's now going corporate. So all the B2C apps are not making money. Yep. And so everyone's saying, well, let's, w- if, if we can prove through research study that this is boosting well-being, well, the person who's going to pay for it will be the company. Because if we can reduce stress, the company benefits from a lower-stressed workforce, and there we go. And but the,
1: the problem then is, you're again, leaving
0: the most needy outside of the exactly and and we see the most engaged audience on live better is, is, is probably students yeah. who don't have a company who's going to pay f- pay for this and we have a few lonely unemployed people who are at home all day and and so what i realized is that the logical economic capitalist thing to do would be to do that um but we that the entire team which didn't that's not what we wanted to do. We didn't want to abandon the customers we already had to go do this. And so I've, our, we have our 501c3 nonprofit application pending with the IRS. And so we're actually converting Live Better to a nonprofit. Um, Because we want to make decisions not based on what's the most profitable. That doesn't mean we might not sell some services and try to make some money because raising money from foundations I'm discovering is very painful. Um, If any foundations are interested, please call me. Um, (laughs) But but so so raising money is difficult. So we do want to get some revenue streams, but we want to make our priority is really to boost well-being that that's what we're in this for. And so we're 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 finding for us. What does not for profit mean? Because I guess it means you don't pay tax on profits. Not for but profit. But you don't make profits, I guess. Yeah, so not for profit basically means we can't make money. Yeah. Um, which basically, what it does is it closes one door and opens another. So the, it closes the door to getting investors. Because, and, and just uh, a sidebar, if we want to start a rant about impact investing, I think impact investing is bullshit. Because impact investing is still trying to get m- above 0% returns, right? I think if impact investing was up to minus 50% returns, then I would believe it, but... As long as we want positive returns, you can't truly be about it So we're closing the door to investors. Um, But what we're doing is we're opening two doors um, on the other side. Uh, One is donations, so people who want to be generous with their money. Um, We'll come back to that because hopefully there's a few generous potential donors listening. That would be wonderful. And then the other is actually to partnerships. And yep. so when we were for profit, we tried to do some partnerships. And, you know, there's Instagram influencers who do content about well-being. We reached out to a few and they said, yeah, that's great. We'll promote Live Better. It's $15,000 or $20,000. And, and it, they cannot, we ended up in the same problem that we couldn't afford to sponsor this Instagram influencer for $20,000 because we were going to make enough money on the other end. And now we're not legally not full not profit yet. Hopefully, by the end of year. Um, but basically, what we're already seeing is we're now opening a different set of conversations. Where we're saying, "Hey, we're a not for profit. We have an app. Um, as soon as we have a research study, we can say research proves that this helps. Can you please help promote us to your audience?" And you're helping them by doing this. And already it's clear we're, we've got a couple things li- lining up that will let us really get a much the reach we want to help people um, without having to spend millions of dollars in marketing. So, so, and and I think that given that the investor model wasn't going to work anyways without going corporate, I think we can now make through. You know, we have some some plans for from building a small revenue stream. Plus, if we can get some donations from foundations and potentially direct donations from our customers, I think we can build a stable. A company that can offer the service for free so this way we don't abandon the people who need it most and and, and I think for mental health it's particularly important because if you look at the the, the populations that are suffering the most and suicide statistics are, are one of the most gruesome ways to look at it but really quite indicative that you know you look at it, poor communities see suicide rates going up far far higher than rich ones so in Manhattan suicide is up something like 50% over the last 10 years In backwater, Tennessee, it's up a thousand percent. So, and that's, and those people don't have money, right? So I think if we, if we say that all this new technology for mental health is only for people who have money, we're just making the inequality problem, which is calling all of our, causing so many problems around the world today worse. And so we want to make sure that we are accessible to everybody. Um, Just, it's the social right thing to do. Fantastic.
1: And if somebody wanted to donate, like they just they just go into the app and there's it's clear how to there, donate.
0: There is in the app. If you can install the app, we we, we added this uh, actually just last week, so I don't have the stats yet, but you can become a patron. of a little better in the app. But really, we, you know, we're looking for a few other uh, foundations or high net worth individuals who are willing to make a long-term commitment who will help us fund us for two or three years at a time um, so that we can get the right team on board because really we need, you know, a, a company like the, the reality of an internet startup is you need something like five hundred to, to a to million a year to have a proper team. Yeah, uh, in the sense that you know, if you need someone to do the engineering and marketing, customer support, social media, uh, finance, management, it adds up.
1: And um, how long? How long will you keep this going yourself if you don't find those donors and you don't find those foundations and and people well, don't you know and you aren't able to charge for any services? Like, wh- 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 how long will you do this? at least through 2020. Cool. I think this is probably the the time to, to wrap it up. I just want, I think I wanted to finish by just saying that, you know, you, we spent a lot of this podcast talking about kind of macro issues that you, neither you nor I really feel like we know how to solve. Plus we've spent a lot of time sort of saying that startups can be a vehicle for good, but you know, a qualified vehicle for good, but yet, I strongly get the impression from you that even though you might not know precisely how to fix these macro problems you're using a startup to fix them bottom up bit by bit so in, in some ways I feel like you're a, you know you're a, you're a, you're a contradiction because um because I think you are solving these massive societal problems maybe not in one go but and I think you're using tech and a startup to do it.
0: And, and one thing I ask myself every day, which is, I think is the important question is, is it the right vehicle? Yep. And, and I'll give you an example, one thought that troubles me. I read this book, Winner Takes All. Yeah. Uh, Winners Take All recently. Wonderful book, very thought provoking. Very good book, which we we'll the link. Yeah. yeah. And, and he, he makes the point that often what we do as startups is just a drop in the bucket. And uh, this made me think about something, you know, I'm spending my time trying to build tools to help people boost their mental health. But, you know, in Switzerland and in the US, uh, mental health care is not reimbursed very well by insurance. And if we could just get mental health care to be fully reimbursed, wouldn't we have a far more significant impact? Because let's be realistic, my app is nowhere near as good as going to visit a therapist. And so if we can just get therapy to be reimbursed or to have more social workers to do more kind of real in-person sessions, which will have a bigger impact. So should I perhaps shift my energy towards lobbying? I think that's the key question. If you, so, you want to feel better, I
1: don't believe those two things are mutually exclusive, right? Because, because I believe that with your app, by making mental health more accessible to people, you're, you're already starting to create, I don't want to say groundswell because I don't know how many people use it, but like you're already starting for society to appreciate that this can help, and maybe create some pressure for that, for it to be made more widely available.
0: Yeah, I hope so. I hope yeah. so. I, I hope so too. Yeah, and I, I think that's why. Well, we, to your point, we probably need both. Yeah, um, but I, I think very few people are doing the latter. Very, and and I think that's the point of winner takes all is that we're all spending time on these things because they're so close. You know, we, it's The social acceptable thing is through the startup, which I'm doing, but perhaps we need to start lobbying more or get into politics. Or, you know, I can't run for government here anyways, and I would be a terrible politician. But I think that's, that's the question that keeps nagging
1: at me. Well, again, to finish on a positive note, is pay a compliment, <laughs> because I guess compliments also boost uh, well-being. The other point in that book, uh, one of the many other points in that book, which again, we, we here at Aperture would highly recommend, is that there is a lot of like self serving philanthropy, and I and I think where you are different is you are somebody who um, came out of Silicon Valley. I, I, I guess you you did you did well through AppNexus and you are being a true philanthropist because this is a true exercise in philanthropy in a way that going to Davos each year, for example, isn't right.
0: I guess. Thank you. <laughs> I'll, I'll say thank you for the, it's a nice compliment. It's, it's, and I can tell you the most pleasure I get every day is trying, trying to help, um, and seeing when people write us thank you notes. It's, it's, it's the thing that makes my day. Um, so I like what I do and I rec- recommend others do the same. Can't think of a better way to
1: finish than that, which is, I mean, you, are, you yourself are eating your dog food, right? You accept that happiness is the, ultimate goal in life and you're doing stuff to promote your own happiness, right? Even through the pursuit of helping others, as it turns out. It's totally selfish. Yeah. yeah it's like selfless, selfless selfishness.
0: Yeah. Yes. And now my head hurts. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, good for you for, 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 for perceiving it. Okay. Thank you. So, um, Mike, thank you. I guess you should thank me. <laughs> I thank you again for having yeah. me. Well, thank you very much for making the trip to Geneva for this podcast. And um, again, we'll tweet out the links to some of your blogs, we'll tweet out the links to some of the books we mentioned, and we'll also tweet out a link to the app. And if anybody wants to make a donation, please do. It's a very good cause. Yeah. Thank you very much.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much.